Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. I invite you to open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 9. Today we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, this series Rebuild, and um, I'll be talking about chapter 9 today, and then next week Pastor David is going to talk about the completion and the celebration and the dedication of the wall. Uh, there'll be a final part of this series we call Rebuild. Before we read the scripture, I want to ask you a question. What does God think of you? not uncommon for me when I'm meeting with people. In fact, I, I might even say this is the most common. Uh, when people come to meet, they want them to prayer or they have a question about their life or they want to talk about something that happened to them. It seems to me that, that the question behind the question, what they really want to know, what they're really asking is, what does God think of me? Is, he, is God mad at me? Is God pleased with me? Is God frustrated with me? Has God lost his patience with me? Have I surprised God by the things that I've done or the things that I've not done? What does God really think of me? I think that's a question that this narrative that we look at today is going to answer. And we're just going to pick a few verses that kind of draw us a picture or paint us a picture of what's happening in this chapter. And we know from a couple weeks ago that they've completed the wall. They actually have finished the construction project. And yet the book continues. You see, in, in the, the passage that we read last week in chapter 8, there's actually a transition that happens because Nehemiah is going to be seen less and somebody else has kind of taken center stage and it's Ezra. Ezra was the prophet. He actually was a scribe, but he had the role of a prophet or priest in these moments. And so it's, it's the outer work, the work on the outside had been completed, but the inner work in people's hearts was just beginning. And that's a transition. It's a, chapter 8 is like a pivot point. We go from all the focus on the construction that Nehemiah was in charge of to the actual reform of the people which Ezra became the leader for. And if you want to get, a, by the way, a more complete story of the entire narrative, you should read the book Ezra and Nehemiah as one. It's actually one narrative of, of what happens in that time. And so when we transition from Nehemiah and the construction project to the internal project, we move from this structure and physical to the spiritual and we move from external, something that's on the outside, to something that's internal. We move from needing an architect and a builder to needing a priest and a prophet. And we kind of see this transitions happening, and, and, and we can look for clues as we, as we examine this. What does God think of me? And how they responded in these moments give us a picture into that and a clue into that. And you can kind of get a sense for what the people are feeling, like the outside has been fixed, but the inside hasn't. We all know this to be true, that reform takes more than fixing things on the outside. It takes fixing things on the inside. 
you're uh, recovering from any kind of addiction, and maybe you find yourself there today, you know that an important part of that is to create structure in your life to get the, uh, the substance out of reach, to put it away, get it in places that you don't have access to it. And then create new schedules for yourself that don't put yourself in vulnerable times. And then, then you have to maybe change your, your friend group that you have so you stay away from. So the external structure is really important, but, but without the internal reform, without the change on the inside, you probably won't last. And we also know this to be true that maybe you're here today, maybe you've come to church today, or maybe you're watching today, and you, you've tuned in because you know this to be true, because externally, you've got a job, you're making good money, you've got a family and kids, you got the possessions, a house and nice cars, and you get vacations, and on the outside, everything looks great. But on the inside, you're empty. And you know that just the external doesn't provide for us what we need. Something's got to happen on the inside. We need more than an architect and more than a builder. We need a prophet and we need a priest. And that's where we find ourselves today, this people that, that find themselves actually like captive. In fact, I want to draw your attention to verse 36. If you just look quickly at verse 36, chapter 9, verse 36, and here's what it says. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers. That's what they're saying to God. They're saying, we're slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. The people of Israel were there, and they built the wall, and they, they had everything in place on the outside, but they were ruled by a foreign king. They were slaves in their homeland. You ever find yourself being a slave in a homeland? Like everything should be good because if everything's on the outside, but on the inside, I'm captive. I'm a prisoner. I don't feel free. And how is this, how is this story uh, kind of structured? Well, here's the way Chuck Swindoll says it this way in his great book written many years ago. He says this, the whole chapter 9 is, is first starts with a look up and then a look back and then a look in, and then a look forward. And today, we're going to look primarily at two of those, the look back and the look in. And these two are confessional in nature. It's people making a confession. And confession is a, it's kind of a Bible word. We use it as well in, in, in our everyday language, but it, it is a very meaningful Bible word, but it has a simple meaning. It means just acknowledging what is true. So saying, hey, we know this to be true. And the people do that. They look back and acknowledge truth. They confess what is true. And they look inward at themselves. And they acknowledge truth. And as we do that, as we read or as we see, and I'm going to point out several scriptures, but as we see it, we're going to uncover a truth about us and a truth about God that helps us understand what does God think about me. The truth about us that this reveals is that we can run from the plans of God. Their confession reveals we all can run from the plans of God. Verses 7 through 31, it's the, the bulk of this chapter is this look back. They're recounting their history. 
and they acknowledge their failures. In fact, they have, it's almost like a pattern that it goes through. The three times that it acknowledges, they, they say, we've failed, we've failed, we've failed. Through three times they do this. And I want us to look just at the highlight of these verses. So if you look first at verse 16, it says, but they and our fathers, listen, what, it's, what they're confessing, what they're acknowledging, they acted presumptuously, and they stiffened their neck, and they did not obey our commands. And then it in verse 26, same kind of narrative, a different situation, but same response. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled, and they cast your law behind their back, and they killed your prophets. And then verse 29b, the second part of verse 29 says, and yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands. They turned a stubborn shoulder, they stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. You kind of get the gist of what they're saying? We have failed you over and over again. Each of these narratives are a different time in the Hebrew history. And, and the, the pattern goes kind of like this. God blesses them. And then the people enjoy the blessing of God. And they forget where it comes from and they begin to sin. And then they suffer and they repent. And God graciously responds. Three different times in this chapter, it has that same narrative over and over again. And they acknowledge their failures. You know, there's something very powerful about acknowledging failure. It's powerful, especially in our relationship with God, with naming what our failures are, saying them out loud and saying, God, I have failed you here. It's an important aspect of spiritual growth. Can I tell you also, it's, a, it's an important aspect of human relationship as well, confessing what we know to be true, saying it out loud. But we're too often, we want to we pretend like it didn't happen. I'm particularly drawn to verse 26, it has this phrase, they, they kept what they, the commands of God behind their back is what it said. It, it, he, they put the commands of God behind their back. What does that mean? It means like they, they turned their back to the book, turned their back to the law. So that, you know, something's to our back, we don't, it's not obvious, we don't see it. It's what they did to the commands of God. You know, we do that, especially at this time of year, by the way. We're all prone to this, because what do a lot of people do in January every year? They diet. It's like the number one diet month of the year. At least for a month, I'm going to be on a diet, people say. But you know what they do? What we do is we take the bathroom scale and we hide it. Right? We put it in a closet or behind a door. We put it where we don't see it. Because if I don't see it, maybe the truth, maybe I don't have to deal with the truth. And that's what they did. They took the commands of God and they put them behind them. Maybe I don't have to deal with it if I put it behind me. And then, and then in this passage, they're acknowledging that. God, we knew what to be true and we didn't. We put it behind us. We didn't. Your commands were there and we, we didn't heed what you told us to do. It's healthy. It's good for us to acknowledge our failures. And can I tell you something about this passage that's a little convicting is that they acknowledge the failures of their fathers and their ancestors as well. And sometimes that's an important thing, and I'm not getting political about it, but there are times that it's important for us to acknowledge that the people who preceded us, who identify with us, messed up. Chuck Swindoll says this, a realistic view of the past 
can provide the very best perspective on the present and can suggest ways to ensure a better future. Knowing the past and the failures, our failures and the failures of our Father can be very helpful for us in paving a path forward. So verses 7 through 31, they're looking back and acknowledging their failures. Verses 32 through 37, the next little section here, 32 through 37, now is the look in. The beginning part, they're acknowledging their failures. Now they're looking in and they're acknowledging their frailty, where they are weak. Verse 32 says this, God, please don't underestimate the difficulty we are facing and enduring. It's this plea to God. Is it possible, God, that you understand how hard this is? God, we want to do right, and we are not doing right. We see the failures of our past, and we're weak. We're frail to be able to do what you want us to do. Can you, can you please not ignore our frailty? They're painting a very accurate picture of what's going on. Can I tell you, that level of vulnerability is not for the weak or the insecure. The weak or insecure people, we, we tend to hide our weaknesses and hide our insecurities and we hide our frailty. We, we don't want people to know that there's frailty in us. And yet there's something profound that happens when we acknowledge our weakness, when we acknowledge our frailty. And it's not done by the weak and insecure. It's done by those have a heart to see God. And again, this is also very important in our human interactions. It's, it's that vulnerability that creates connection with people. You want to get to know somebody, it requires vulnerability. It requires people being able to see the frailty of who you are and the failures of the past and the frailty, the weaknesses in your own life. The people of Israel acknowledged before God, we are weak, we have failed, and we are frail. We can't be everything we want to be. But in God's response, we learn a truth about God. It's true that we can run from the plans of God, but it's also true that we can't outrun the heart of God. And no matter how much we want to run from the plans of God, the heart of God is always chasing us, always there. Every single, of these, every single one of these three encounters where they tell of these failures over and over again, the response that God has is consistent towards the people of Israel. In verse 17, it says this. This is after that first sinning. It says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. I'm sure what they expected, the, the expected response is that God is angry and condemning and surprised and impatient. And that's not at all God's response. Merciful slow to anger. In the next one, it says, according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. You rescued them when they, when they abandoned you, God, you rescued them. And then the next one in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. 
or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. No matter what we do, no matter where you've gone, no matter how far you've run from God, His response to you is slow to anger, full of mercy. There's this term in Hebrew. It's a beautiful word. We don't have an equivalent in English. It's the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. I want you to say it with me. Hesed. Say it one more time. Hesed. It's a very important word, very meaningful word. It's full with meaning. And it, the best way we can describe it in English, it's a covenant word, and it means unfailing, steadfast love. It basically means this. It's God saying, I won't break my vow even if you do. No matter what we do, God is saying to us, I love you no matter what. And that's the way he loves us. You ever wonder what God thinks of you? Do you wonder what God thinks of you? You know what he thinks of you? Hesed love is what he has for you. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what brought you here, no matter your background, your nationality, your language, anything about you, God sees you with hesed love. No matter if you break your covenant with him, he will not break his covenant with us. He loves us with hesed love. It's hard for us to understand it because we don't use that kind of love with each other. It is the way that he views us. So in this passage, it's, it's interesting the the steps that they take. So we, we saw last week part of the reading of the Word and the, the way they responded to it. And then today there's this, this confession that goes on um, that they're having. Is really, it's a prayer. It's a conversation that they're having with God. And they're confessing, they're acknowledging, stating to be true what their failures of their past and the frailty of who they are. And somewhere in there, they're, they're actually reforming and establishing for the first time in a long time, the, these feasts that God had set up um, that were ways for the Hebrew people to acknowledge God and to celebrate His goodness with them. And three of those feasts that God I think there's seven or eight different ones throughout the calendar year, but, but three of them happen in the first month of the Jewish New Year. And they, the first one is called Trumpets, and it's where they blow a shofar, a ram's horn, as a part of the celebration, and they eat sweet food to celebrate the goodness of God. And that happens for like 10 days, and the last day of the Feast of Trumpets, and by the way, it's a party, it's a celebration, but the last day of the Feast of Trumpets is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, we could call it the Day of Reckoning. The Day of Atonement is when the people acknowledge and, and pay for their sin, for what's happened. For They confess all their sin, and so there's some who say, we don't know exactly how it falls in the timing because they were reestablishing everything, but there's some who say that this chapter 9 may have aligned with this Day of Atonement of them giving some sort of account for their sin. You know what they would do on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Reckoning, is that the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies, the place that was reserved only for this day of the year. And he would come into that Holy of Holies, and there is the Ark of the Covenant, a box with the commands uh, in them. And on top of that um, box is a seat. It's called the mercy seat. And the high priest would take a an innocent, spotless lamb, 
and sacrifice it. Kill it. And take the blood from that lamb and sprinkle it over the seat, the mercy seat. So as to say the blood of this lamb is paying the price that we can't pay for the sins that we committed. And we're placing that blood on the mercy seat. And then they would take a goat. And they would take that goat and the priest would verbally confess the sins of the people to a goat. And then they'd send that goat into the wilderness. So as to say, that goat's taken all of our sin with him. Do you know what they call the goat? The scapegoat. (laughs) That's what a scapegoat is. He's taken our sin with him. And into the wilderness he goes. And then, a few days after that day of atonement, when they've acknowledged their sin, and they've paid for that sin with the sacrifice of an innocent lamb, and his blood sprinkled over the mercy seat, and the scapegoat has left with our sin, and then they have what they call the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about a little bit last week. Tabernacles is another word for tents or booths, and they gather as families in these tents. They have a seven-day camp out in tents. I'd love it. My wife would hate it, right? Seven days in a tent celebrating the goodness of God, that I don't have to carry my sin anymore. It's gone. Just with that scapegoat, out went my sin. There's a season of rejoicing with trumpets. There's a season of mourning with atonement. There's a season of rejoicing with tabernacles. Can I tell you that's exactly where we are today? How does God view me with hesed love so much love that his son became that sacrificial lamb so that once and for all the sacrifice is paid and it doesn't matter what I bring to the table it doesn't matter what wrong I've done what frailty I have his blood covers everything for me and sometimes it's hard for us to believe that God actually loves us with Hesed love. Dane Ortland says it this way, it takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Some of you today, it's hard for you to believe that God would love you with Hesed love. Could that be possible? Could he really love me that way? Even though he knows what I've done, even though he knows my weakness, even though he knows my frailty, could God love me that way? A few weeks ago, I was invited to speak for Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is a program that happens here on Tuesday nights. We could all benefit from Celebrate Recovery, all of us. It's a program that helps people who have, not, who have acknowledged a hang-up or a habit or a hurt that they want to process through and walk through. And I knew what I was going to encounter. I've been there before and I've seen, but I wasn't prepared for it. I don't know that I ever will be. When I walked in, the first person who stood up to kind of give the welcome, they stood up and said, hey, my name is, and they told their name. I'm a grateful follower of Jesus Christ and I struggle with, and then they begin to name what they struggle with. I struggle with pornography and alcohol and 
whatever else they struggle with. The next person that got up to sing, hi, my name is, and they told their name. I'm a grateful follower of Jesus, and I struggle with, and they began to name the things that they struggle with. I stood up to preach. I don't know that I've ever stood to preach, and I felt more receptivity from an audience who was willing to say, here's where I am weak. I wasn't prepared. I said, I don't know what to say. I don't know. What do I list? And I just, I said, hey, you know, I struggle like all of you do. I've, I've not done as good a job as identifying it as you have. I told that to my team that I work with closely every day. They said, well, you should have asked us. We could have filled in the blanks for you. <laughs> Can I say to you today? My name is Danny. I'm a grateful follower of Jesus Christ. And I struggle with fear, with anger, with insecurity, with not being the dad, husband, granddad that I want to be. I struggle not being who you desire for me to be. But you know what I find? The Hesed love of God. Given to me and given to you. Given to us through the once for all atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to celebrate that atonement through the receiving of the Lord's Supper that we'll share together. Let's pray. In these moments, God, I pray, receive our gratitude for a Savior who paid it all. I pray, God, may the moment that we share together help us to to capture in crystal clear reality. What do you think of us? You love us with an everlasting love that'll never end. No matter how far we run, we can never outrun your love for us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.